So we turn now to the fourth of our Lenten Gospels from the Gospel of Luke for year C. And this time we strike one of the most famous of all parables and why would it not be? It's a most extraordinary story and it's the story of us. As I've often said to students in teaching the scripture, this is your life. So it's your life, it's my life. The word that interprets us before ever we interpret it. I said last time that the parables of Jesus have that pattern. They start in the ordinary world, and here it certainly does. A family in which there are tensions. Does that sound familiar? Well, it does to me. So it's the ordinary, identifiably human world that you and I know. At some point, the ordinary gives birth to the extraordinary, and we'll see that as we follow the parable. And then, and this is a classic instance of this, the parable is unfinished because it looks to human response. So just keep that pattern in mind as we move through this famous text. It's worth keeping in mind too the the audience to which Jesus is speaking. We're told that the tax collectors and sinners were all seeking the company of Jesus. So you've got the tax collectors and the sinners, those dreadful people, utterly unworthy. And the Pharisees and the scribes are complaining. He, he welcomes sinners. Isn't that shocking? And he even eats with them. And it's at that point that Jesus speaks this unforgettable parable. Now, the two boys. It's tempting to say that these two brothers could hardly be more different. They are chalk and cheese. How could they be blood brothers. And yet what we will see, and this is crucial to the parable, is that despite their seeming difference, these two brothers are in fact pathetically alike and utterly different from their father. In that sense, they are summoned to become more like the father and therefore to discover each other as brother. The younger boy is a classic image of the human being under the sway of sin. Now, it was St. Augustine who defined sin, and I think this is brilliant, as looking for the right thing in the wrong place. Now, what's the boy looking for? He wants the money, take the money and run. He's looking for freedom. And what he finds, in fact, is the exact opposite. And this, again, in the whole of Scripture, is the logic of sin. Insofar as it is looking for the right thing, freedom's a good thing to to look for, and it's what the Bible promises. In a sense, liberation is the very core of the Scripture. So, So it's the right thing to look for, but insofar as you look for the right thing in the wrong place, you will in fact find the exact opposite. It's the story of the fall, but there are so many examples in in ordinary human life, even now. If you think of someone who's alcoholic, for instance, who looks to the bottle for an experience of, of liberation, of peace, of painlessness or whatever, but inevitably he or she finds the exact opposite. 
and plunges more deeply into the situation from which he or she is seeking escape. So the logic of sin is clear. If you look for the right thing in the wrong place, you will find the exact opposite. Because you see, here's the boy running off with the money, looking for freedom, and where does he end up? In a pigsty, as a slave. Now this play of son and slave, again, is fundamental to the whole of Scripture. If you go back to the first page of the book of Genesis, that is that question is, is fundamental. And you can read this parable really as a kind of a, a midrash on, on um, Genesis chapter 2 because, you see, the conventional understanding in the ancient world of why God created the human being was God was like a king. He needed slaves to do the dirty work. Kings don't do dirty work themselves. They need slaves. So what is the human being? The human being is a slave. And in the book of Genesis, God seems to be like all the other gods with his slaves. Uh, God creates the human being, puts it, we're told in Genesis 2.15, God puts the human being in the garden to till it and keep it. What are you? You're a slave. Get used to it. But then four verses later in verse 19, we're told that God calls the human being. He says, Adam, come here, earth man, come here. I have a job for you. And God asks Adam to, to name the creatures. And this use of language, naming, to order the chaos, is sharing in God's creativity, God's creative work. So at that point, and this is explosive throughout human history, the human being is not a slave of God at all, but a co-creator, created in the image and likeness of God. If that's not revolutionary, I don't know what is. And it has been right down through the centuries and will be till the end of time. So here is the son who ends up a slave. So what are you, human being? This is the question implied. Are you son, daughter, or are you in fact a slave? Take your pick because it is up to you. In that sense, you are free to choose. Now here he is in the pigsty and we're told he came to his senses, or did he? How many of my father's paid servants, and you know the text as well as I do. Here am I, the son. How many of the slaves are eating well? And here's the son, me, dying of hunger. I'm going to leave this place and go home, back to my father. And then he prepares the speech very, very carefully. We all know the feeling when we're under pressure. Get the words right. So he prepares his text and he memorises it perfectly. And it's noble, is it not? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. And so on. So he's prepared it perfectly. And on the way home, he's rehearsing it over and over again to make sure he's got it word perfect. This is important. Now, when he gets home, we're told, the father, looking through the window, sees him coming up the drive. And you might, if you stayed in the ordinary world, you might have the father sitting there looking out the window, seeing the, the son on his way home, saying, oh, here he comes. I knew he'd be back sooner or later. This was never going to work. Never going to last. Here he comes. Uh, that's not what the father does. We're told the father runs, very undignified for a, 
an oriental elder with long flowing robes. But the father runs, and this is where the parable turns extraordinary. Because the father is a God figure, clearly. The father runs down to meet the boy. And there are some unforgettable paintings, Rembrandt's most notably, of this moment where the son welcomes the boy home. Now, at that point, before the father can speak, the boy begins to blurt out his carefully prepared speech, which he never finishes. He starts off, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. Now, he doesn't even get to that point. As soon as he says, I am no longer worthy to be your son, what does the father say? Stop! It's not a matter of you being worthy. You're the son because you're the son because you're the son. That's just who you are. It's not what you are, it's who you are. It's not a matter of worthiness. In other words, here is the boy saying, I'm going to prove that I'm worthy of sonship. I'm going to prove I'm worthy of your love. I'm going to earn it. And at that point, the father says, stop, stop, silent. And in fact, he says, put the ring on his finger, bring out the the best robe, put the sandals on his feet. Just by the way, the ring was the, the signet ring giving him the right to, to write the checks himself and run off again with the money. He can do it all over again. Why? Because he's the son, not a slave. And it's that that the boy has to accept, that it's not a matter of worthiness, of earning anything. He just has to accept the truth of who he is. I am the son, with all the freedom that that implies. So it is, the father's welcome to the boy is, is, is quite extraordinary. And that's the kingdom moment. It's extravagant. It turns the world on its head. But that's what these parables do. Then we turn to the second boy. Now he's a good boy. He hasn't run off with the money. And he comes in from the field. He's been working really hard out in the field. Comes in. He hears the sound of celebration. Music, dancing, all that stuff. And uh, he's not happy. Not happy at all. He won't go in. And the father again comes out to the other boy, just as he did to the younger son. And what does the older boy say? All these years I have slaved for you and never once did you give me the fatted calf, big party, all that stuff. Never once. And I've earned it. I'm the good boy. I'm worthy. You see how the two boys are the same? Both are locked in the pigsty of worthiness. So they're pathetically alike, however different they may seem. And he doesn't even, the older boy doesn't refer to his brother as his brother. He says, this son of yours. Not my brother. And then, I think in some of the most touching words in the whole of Scripture, the father says at the end, my son. Notice what, notice what he calls him. My son. You are with me always. and All I have is yours. You don't have to earn it. 
It's all yours. But was it not right that we should celebrate and rejoice because your brother here, see, he calls him your brother. Your brother here was dead and has come to life. He was lost and is found. Magnificent. Now, this parable is unfinished because there are two things we don't know. One, did the younger boy do it all over again? Because he was given the freedom to do it. And secondly, does the older boy come into the party? Does he enter the world of fraternity, discover his brother as his brother, his father as his father, and himself as a son? And it's exactly those questions which apply not only to the boys of the story, but to the listeners, to the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes, all of them, but also to you and to me and to our people. These are questions that, that, that bang on our door, particularly in this time of Lent. Son or slave, uh, given the freedom, the freedom that comes from forgiveness, do we do it all over again, find ourselves back in the pigsty? Uh, do we come into the party? Because the party's not going to stop if the older boy doesn't come in. The only question really is, is he going to come in or stay outside cutting off his nose to spite his face? The same's true of us. Now, we can be so imprisoned in our resentments, our angers, that the great feast, the great festival of God just simply passes us by. So, do we come into the feast and embrace our brother, our sister, and our father, and discover the truth that though I might seem in so many ways to be slave, I am in fact a son.'